Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available to you now as a paperback, as a audiobook, but the ebook, esteemed reader, the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to us, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, don't worry about me. I'll get you when you come back with cash money for Banneker Bones and the alligator people and Banneker Bones and the cyborg conspiracy. But you go ahead and you you, you dip your toe in for that first uh, adventure for free. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers. You can find out more about those, more about me, and more importantly, you can find interviews with thousands of authors, literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, book people, world's best people, all available at middlegradeninja.com. More than enough intro, we got to get started. We are uh, honored to have Zeta Elliott with us tonight. Zeta, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, couldn't be more excited to talk to you. Esteemed audience knows that I will never torture my guests by making you sit through me summarizing either your biography or your book because you'll be there and you'll know that I'm getting it wrong and I'll know that you know that I'm getting it wrong. It'll just be awkward. <laughs> so the best place to start is if you would give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Sure. So I am an immigrant. I grew up in Canada. I have now lived in the United States longer than I did in Canada, but you'll probably still hear my accent while we're talking, especially when I say out and about. Uh, I am the author of 40 books for young readers. The most recent just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it is a verse novel co-authored with Lynn Miller Lockman. It's called Moonwalking. And a couple of months before that, I had another middle grade novel come out, The Witch's Apprentice, which is book three in my Dragons in a Bag series. And we have just entered into <laughs> uh, the contract stage for book five. So that will be the last book in the series. We got the cover for book four. It looks fantastic. That comes out next January. Uh, and we just finished National Poetry Month, so I was writing a poem a day for Napolrimo. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of poetry books for kids, and I have a couple for adults, and I think I'm going to try to maybe self-publish another one this summer. I have a history of self-publishing. When doors close in the publishing industry, which is pretty often for a writer like me, um, I make my own books, so I have sort of an interesting trajectory. I started out as a college professor and had worked with kids part-time for 30 years, ever since I was a teenager, uh, and then just decided in 2014 that I was going to take the big dive and try to write full-time, and I'm blessed that I can now do that here in Chicago. So from 2014 all the way down to 2022, you've been full-time author? Yes, those first few years were pretty tight. Um, but by the time I got through the first four years, I would say, um, I was doing okay and had an agent who was able to get me uh, more deals, bigger advances. Uh, and I was making probably half or more of my income from doing school visits and conferences. That's one of the advantages of having an academic background is that I could speak on college campuses to um, academics and students, library, science folk, uh, pre-service educators, uh, but then I could also go into schools and do presentations. Uh, I was also writing for different journals and things like that. So 
I learned to have multiple income streams and now I'm sort of winnowing <laughs> and trying to trying to have maybe just one or two. The pandemic helped a lot. The pandemic put a stop to my uh, relentless travel schedule. So I was grateful for that in a, in a strange sort of way. Well, it cuts down on the travel, but I imagine then that also cuts down on some of the revenue that would have been coming in from those visits. So I thought it would. <laughs> I really thought it would when the when the pandemic first hit in March 2020. I, I panicked. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm gonna lose all of this income. And then it did not take long for schools and libraries to pivot to online. And then I was completely overwhelmed. So Initially, I said yes to everything because I was—I didn't know what the future was going to hold. And then, by the time I got to 2021, I was like, "Okay, this is not sustainable." So, <laughs> I took the fall of 2021 off. I think from July to December, I didn't do any any virtual presentations. But now I'm I'm at a better pace. I think I'm doing probably averaging three, maybe four school visits, virtual visits a month, and I'm just going back to doing in person this month. Uh, so I had two book festivals coming up and a little, a little nervous about that, but I've been vaccinated and boosted. So I'm going to, I'm just going to trust that it's all going to be okay. What else can we do? Right. It, it, we, I keep, you know, you, you want to say after the pandemic, <laughs> um, but it's, we're still in it and, you know, probably we'll have to take precautions for the foreseeable future. So yeah, I was at a writer's event uh, Saturdays, the first one since before the lockdown began, where it was it was not an official conference. Uh, it was NoCon. Uh, my friend Maurice Broadus uh, runs MoCon here. Uh, he ran it every year up until the pandemic and took a couple of years off. And then he didn't have the time to put on a full conference, but a lot of the usual attendees all got together and I saw people I hadn't seen for two or three years. Yeah. He's vaccinated and boosted. So we're hugging, but turning our heads to the <laughs> side. We're, we're go inside and then we're outside most of the time. Yeah. I'll take it. I, I had missed being amongst writers in person. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, I'm an introvert. So I sort of feel like this is, in some ways, my dream life. Like I love to stay home <laughs> and be alone. And I have learned that they deliver donuts here. Like I, I have had a lot of delivery experience over the past two years. Um, but you know, as a writer, you also do need to get out of your head, and that generally means getting out of your house. Zoom is just not the same, and Zoom can be exhausting. Whereas to just to be seated at a table with other people, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to Virginia and then to Gaithersburg, uh, Maryland. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, hopefully for all of us, uh, we'll become more virtual um, and um, that it will, you still will do the in-person events, but you'll be able to do more of the Zoom events also to cut down on your traveling, giving you more time to write. Because exactly. we're expecting you to reach at least 80 books. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think we are, we're definitely going to be looking, I think the future is hybrid, I'll put it that way. I think, you know, when I accept a conference these days, because people are booking so far ahead, they're like, we'd love to have you come in November. I'm like, I don't know what things are going to be like in November. So this is a conditional yes. And if we need to pivot and do something virtual or, you know, I hope you'll understand that I'm a black middle-aged woman with asthma and, you know, I'm not going to take unnecessary risks. I remember hearing, I think it was Ann Pratchett talking about, you know, they said essential travel only. And a lot of what we do as authors is not essential 
you know, some of it is, but not all of it. The, the kind of the amount of school visits I was doing was just unsustainable anyway. So to have a school district now say to me, we'd like you to do eight presentations in one week for our district. I'm like, so hang on, are all the students in the same district reading the same book? <laughs> and they were like, yeah. I'm like, well, I think I could do like one presentation uh, virtually and then everybody could you know, tune in and you can record it and keep it for a week. And yeah, we just, we have other options. I'm not gonna be doing eight of the same presentations in one school ever again. Fair enough. Seems like uh, well, seems like that should have been obvious before it became obvious to a lot of people. But hey, we're getting there. <laughs> there was a time I would have jumped on that. You know that that is how I stayed afloat for for several years. So it's nice to be in. A, it's a privilege to be in a position now to say I I can't do eight. <laughs> I can do one. Yeah, and still pay my rent. So when did and. Um... Uh, you, you may or may not feel this, but when did you feel that you have made it as an author that this is going to be a sustainable source of income? Uh, this is going to be your primary occupation? Yeah, I mean, it was only probably, I think, three years ago that I earned as much as I had been making as a professor. And so felt like, okay, that had been a good trade-off that I gave up a tenure track position at a New York City community college and you know, was living sort of the more flexible life that I wanted and that I needed to write. Uh, and then the Dragons in a Bag series took off. You know, That was unexpected for me and for the publisher. <laughs> uh, it hasn't been an easy journey and you know how challenging it can be to write a series. Uh, so I'm glad the series is coming to a close, uh, but it, it is just sort of, I mean, it's startling and it's, it's instructive. It's just really interesting how you can write a book. You can have written so many books and then it's just one particular narrative that grabs folks' attention. And next thing you know, it's part of the global read aloud and kids are reading it in Nairobi and kids are reading it in Alaska and you know, kids are reading it all over and Random House has not sold any foreign rights. So potentially, you know, there could be even more kids reading it in different languages. Uh, in the future, we have been talking to different film production companies. We did once sell the rights and then got them back when that fell through. Um, so the idea that this series, I call it my 401k because <laughs> I no longer have a pension, but it seems as though this series is gonna be the one that enables me to write a whole bunch of other things that are not commercial, uh, but just as important to me. Well, honestly, as uh, shaky as uh, retirement pan uh, plans have been uh, over the uh, past several years, mm -hmm. uh, best-selling middle-grade series with movie potential sounds, I, I, I would I would take that over a fully stock. A better bet in some ways, yeah, than trying to trust the stock market. So, well, you know what? Let's let's talk about dragons in a bag, and then we'll we'll come back and we'll talk more about your publishing journey. Um, but uh, uh, per my promise, I will not summarize your book or your series. What does esteemed audience need to know about Dragons in a Bag? Well, it is a series that features a nine-year-old boy named Jackson who has decided he is going to be the apprentice of a witch on the brink of retirement. She's known to his family as Ma, even though she is not related. 
uh, and Ma has sort of run through a series of apprentices. They have not, uh, none of them has worked out and Jax thinks he's gonna be different. Uh, and he lost his father the year before. His single mother is fighting eviction in Brooklyn due to gentrification. Uh, so he sort of feels as though he's invisible in some ways, underestimated in others. He wants a chance to prove himself. And so he becomes Ma's apprentice. She has to take three baby dragons to the realm of magic. But of course, by the end of book one, only two of the dragons make it there because there's a dragon thief, which is the title of the second book. So Jax has to come back to Brooklyn and find the dragon thief, which is his best friend's little sister. <laughs> uh, and ultimately the, the missing dragon is returned, but there's a question around whether the magical creatures that have up until now lived in the human world are safe. And the guardian of the realm of magic, Sis, firmly believes that the only way to keep those creatures safe is to keep them in the realm of magic. So she's for a closed border policy. And Jackson really thinks that maybe we should have an integrated world where magical creatures can come and go and humans just have to learn how to respect and protect those creatures. So that's kind of the underlying tension in the whole series. Book three shifts from Brooklyn. The first two books were set there. I lived in Brooklyn for 20 years. Now I live in Chicago. So I moved, brought the series with me and they're attending the annual witch convention uh, and again, up for debate is this question of whether Sis, the guardian of the realm of magic, had the right to close all the portals to try to keep all of these magical creatures safe in the realm of magic, Palmara. Uh, Jackson decides to be the ambassador <laughs> and to encourage Sis to open the gates. But when she does that, that opens a possibility for betrayal because her twin brother who has been banished for a thousand years wants revenge. And so he's waiting for her to make a mistake and opening the portals uh, ultimately does put all of those creatures at risk. So uh, book four is the Enchanted Bridge. It takes place entirely in Palmara. And then book five is the War of the Witches. Uh, and so there's this sort of intergenerational tension between witches who believe in the old traditional ways and this new generation who thinks, you know, the old ways aren't really serving us and we have to try something new and Jax has to pick a side. War of the Witches, what a great title. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so where, as, as, uh, as we record this, where are you at? Have you completely finished book four and five? So book four is completely done. I'll probably, I think I get one more round of copy edits uh, and we just got the final cover in book five. I sort of started, I had my, I got my outline done last month and uh, the deadline for me to turn it in is July 5th. So I have figured out that if I can write at least 500 words a day for the month of May, then I'll end that month with 15,000 words. And then if I write a thousand words a day in June, I'll have another 30,000 words. So that should, that should put me right about where I need to be by July 5th. Um, once I have an outline, it's usually pretty easy for me to, to sort of stay on task and focus. Um, but I am taking a puppetry class <laughs> and I was selected for a black puppetry residency and I have a performance to do mid-June. So um, I'm sort of dividing my, my time between those two projects. But that's the blessing of writing full-time is that those are really my two pressing obligations and I have some virtual stuff and I have a couple of book festivals, but 
other than that, I'm here and I can just get up every day and crank it out. And you're doing this uh, just for the joy of learning puppetry or? So if I look to my right, I have my vision board. And for years, I have been putting on my to-do list um, puppets. I just, I really, I love them. <laughs> I always have. I would really like to work with them. I mean, I've been interested in film for a long time too. So I don't actually imagine myself doing performances over and over and over again in the theater. Uh, I really just want to adapt something that I wrote, an origin story that I wrote for The Enchanted Bridge and a middle grade novel that I wrote uh, called Littlest Sister from the Stars. Uh, and I was learning more about African cosmologies and ideas around um, human beings being seeds that were cast from the stars. And uh, so I've written this sort so of- Octavia Butler or just- you know, so people will call it Afrofuturistic. I, I don't think of it that way, but it's definitely a little more science fiction-y than fantasy maybe, although it has a kind of folklore element to it as well. I just think, you know, when you're writing for kids, it was the same thing when I was a professor. I mean, you can, you can become proficient at something and end up in a holding pattern. And then how do you make sure that you're growing? So I wrote my first graphic novel last fall after moving here. Uh, and I, like I said, I'm writing more poetry. Uh, I was a playwright <laughs> in another lifetime and I have written an adaptation of my young adult poetry collection, Say Her Name. So I just wanna make sure I'm, I'm sort of using all the different parts of my brain. And when you're a writer and you only think about words, 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 I just, I don't know that that's necessarily good for my imagination in the long term. I think it would be good for me to make something with my hands. So I took a shadow puppet class last month and I'm taking a toy theater class this month. And then hopefully I'll be able to come up with a way of staging this, this little script that I've written. And so what else is on the vision board? <laughs> uh, buy a home, which I did. <laughs> have a, a room painted black, which I did, my dining room is black. Uh, subversive stories, I think I'm, I'm succeeding with that. Security, uh, I think I've reached that financially. Uh, a lot of travel, different story ideas. I have this Viking trilogy <laughs> that I have, I started doing research on. I went to Stockholm in 2019 and, and then just haven't, haven't gotten it done. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of finishing the Dragon series and maybe not necessarily taking a break from Kidlet, but giving myself, my adult projects a chance to, to develop. I've got several on the go that are unfinished. And so if I turn in book five on July 5th, then that gives me the rest of this year to decide if I wanna travel, go back to Sweden and do some more research. Uh, I started a book about the Amish <laughs> when I was living in central Pennsylvania. So I need to go, go back there and do some research. Uh, yeah, I've got a few projects. Panama, I need to go there to finish a trilogy. So I've got some, some projects I would like to finish up. And at the very top corner is a picture of two little girls because I am still ambivalent about whether or not I want to start a family. It's, it's when you work with kids, sometimes that's enough. <laughs> and then other times I think, you know, my friend said to me, you've got 40 books, like how many more do you need? And I was like, how dare you? You would never say, you know, that to anyone in another profession. But 
you know, I'm 50, I turned 50 this year. So if I do want to start a family, you know, now's, it's not now or never, but now's a good time to think that through. Sure. On the other hand, I, anytime I start wondering what will I do in the future, how, how carefully should I plan things, I ask myself, what were my plans in, tw in 2019? What did I think I was going to do the next year? So we'll see. We right. <laughs> plan, God laughs. Yeah. So trying to be flexible. I do, I, I would like to have homes in different countries. <clears throat> Excuse me, That's that's been a long time goal. So uh I just bought my home here in Chicago in September and <laughs> almost immediately was like, what's happening in Scotland with the pandemic? Uh, and New Zealand just opened up. That's another country that's on my list. So um, I would like to travel. I would like to plan something for the summer, but I, I'm a little concerned about traveling right now. So I'm gonna wait and see. See, I had diverted us uh, from uh, talking about dragons in, in a bag, but you've, you've done so much, a little bit of everything that I've, I, <laughs> we'll, we'll probably jump around a lot uh, to, to cover everything. But I did want to ask you, you said that dragons in a bag is a kind of mirror book. Uh, and you wish that you could have given this to your father when he was a boy, because it's an exciting, inclusive tale that might have hooked him on reading instead of making it making it feel like a chore for him. So first of all, for any, anybody who's listening to us who's not familiar with the phrase mere book, let's define that for them. And then what do you think, what kind of difference would a book like this, do you hope, would have made for someone like your father? Yeah, Uh so Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop has written a seminal essay. She's a scholar of African-American uh, children's literature and picture books more broadly. And she has a um, really important essay called Mirrors, Windows and Sliding Glass Doors. And she talks about uh, the different ways that books can engage children and can increase their capacity for empathy. Uh, and she talks about the effects, positive and negative, um, when, we, when we see ourselves reflected in the pages of a book and when we don't see ourselves. Uh, and so for me, growing up in Canada, I was reading a lot of British fantasy fiction. So it was always kind of rich white children living in mansions or castles in England. Uh, and I read so many of those books and never read a fantasy book with a black child in it that when I started to write my own fantasy stories, I thought I had to write about white kids because I had no example of anything different. Uh, and then I had to go through this long ongoing process of decolonizing my imagination and decentering whiteness. And I really hope kids today are not gonna have to go through that. When I look at what's being offered on Netflix, I just think, wow, like <laughs> there are so, I mean, every single fantasy series that I see, which seems to be adapted from a young adult novel, um, has a diverse, inclusive cast. And I just never saw anything like that when I was growing up. And certainly my father, who also grew up in a British colony, uh, was a subject of the King of England um, in, you know, the 1940s in the Caribbean, an island, small island called Nevis. His grandmother, in an attempt at improvement, personal improvement, in addition to going to school, he had to sit inside and read the classics. And I guess she selected for him Alice in Wonderland, thinking he would enjoy that. And he hated it. And I think, you know, first of all, we know how important it is to let kids choose their own books. But to be given that book and to be forced to read it and to hate it, 
you know, my father came away from his childhood not liking to read, not liking to read novels. I always, I saw him read the newspaper and the Bible, um, and he was a teacher. He went on to become a high school teacher, and my mother was a teacher, and my mother read constantly. So it's no surprise they ultimately got divorced, but, um, you know, he was a really outgoing, gregarious person, loved sports, loved socializing, uh, but, you know, having a love of books would have just enriched his life even more. And it might have made it easier for us to connect because I think he felt like many immigrant parents do that being an artist, being a writer wasn't a viable career. And even when I got my PhD, he was like, why couldn't you become a useful doctor? Like <laughs> being a medical doctor would have been more practical than having a doctor of philosophy in the family. Uh, so I think if my father had had books where a Caribbean boy, you know, went out to go bring the goats home, as he used to say, or bring the oxen home, you know, if he, you know, heard a story or read a story where that boy ended up feeling empowered, had some kind of access to magic, um, it just, it would have hooked him. He would have been intrigued. He would have wanted to read more. Uh, and that's what a lack of mirror books can do is diminish a child's interest in reading. So we hear a lot about the achievement gap and especially about black boys not wanting to read, but you know, Marley Diaz, young African-American, well, she's a teenager now, she's heading to Harvard, but she started her campaign because she was tired of reading about white boys and their dogs. And so even when we do have new, more inclusive fiction being published, a lot of school curriculum, you know, still features the same old, same old narratives. Uh, so it's a, it's a challenge to try to make sure that every kid, for every reader, a book, to try to make sure everybody has something that appeals to them uh, and that they aren't seeing dominance within a genre, uh, you know, that they don't believe as I did, that magic only belongs to certain people in certain places. Well, a lot of uh, a lot of follow-up questions for that. Um, although I wanted to mention anecdotally, uh, two weekends ago we celebrated my father-in-law's seventieth uh, birthday. Um, so happy birthday, Dad, if you're listening. Um, and um, he grew up. He uh, was African American and, and is African American, but was in the uh, '60s in Mississippi. Uh, and he was, he, he's told the story, I've been around, we've been married, uh, what, 18, 19 years, I don't know, a while. Um, and uh, so I've, I've heard some of his stories multiple times. And he will get told the story of how uh, when he was in third grade, uh, the or third grade, second grade, uh, the teacher slapped him so hard, white teacher, that she left a handprint across his face. Uh, so when his mother came to pick him up, uh, they, they had the cops there and they just moved the, the teacher, uh, they moved him to another class. Uh, and that was how they resolved it in, in the 60s. But prior to that, the thing that, that, that leaves him extremely bitter uh, was they would read Little Black Sambo. Oh. He was the only black child in the class and the yeah. white children were laughing at him. He knew they were laughing at him. And that left with him the clear distinction that, oh, reading is not for me. This is a tool that's used against me. Um, and uh, his wife's a big reader. My wife's a big reader. Uh, but he has never been a big reader. And it's very clear because I've heard that story a few times now that, oh, that experience comes directly from that to not reading later in life. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's horrific. And it's traumatizing. One of my favorite books uh, in the fifth grade was E. Nesbitt's The Phoenix and the Carpet. Uh, and I remember we were reading the book and then, you know, the teacher would wheel in the VCR card, which was so exciting and put the tape in the VCR and we watched the BBC adaptation of the book. But, you know, I went back and looked at that as an adult. Oh, I mean, it's so racist. And of course, the children, white children, hop on the carpet and take a tour of the British Empire, which means they're stopping in all of these places uh, that are populated by people of color. And, uh, you know, they went to a tropical island populated by savages who said things like ooga booga and had, you know, big, I mean, and then the book is illustrated. So you've got these illustrations of savages who have afros and bones through their nose. And of course, they're so ignorant that they think the Irish cook who has come along with them is their white queen. And so they're worshiping that. So, so Nesbitt's taking a, a, you know, a dig at the Irish and at the same time, she's taking a dig at these Africans. And I just, I, I, was, I was wondering to myself, was that in the VCR? Was that in the BBC adaptation? Like I completely blocked it out of my memory. And then I did a presentation at CalArts and the host tracked down video footage of that and it's white folks in blackface with afro wigs like it's just horrific and i think okay so here was me in fifth grade the only black student in my class with an afro like what did i do in that moment did i completely dissociate and be like that's not me or were my classmates laughing and pointing at me and throwing things in my hair which they often did um yeah i think it was just so traumatic that i blocked it out but, you know, I, I went on to write a story about a phoenix and it had a British accent. Like I, it's so deeply embedded in my mind, that experience of reading that book and watching that series and loving it. I mean, I shouldn't leave that part out. I loved it and it, it left a lasting impression. So on the one hand, for me as a voracious reader, I mean, I loved the books that I was reading, but I think, you know, why did my teacher think that that was an appropriate text for us to be reading? I mean, that book was written in what, 19... 11 or something 1912 like why are you teaching this I mean there were so many uh, we never read any Canadian fiction even throughout high school I never read any Canadian fiction it was all Great Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye and Streetcar Named Desire like and Shakespeare <laughs> that was what we read was the plays of Shakespeare and, and U.S. lit so yeah it's it's frustrating to me and and also very gratifying now to have so many teachers reach out on social media with photographs of their students holding my books uh, and you know making artwork and just being so excited about the series. And I, I always thank them. I'm like, thank you for caring enough about your students. Even if you don't have students of color in your class, thank you for making sure that inclusive fantasy fiction is part of the curriculum because it matters. It matters just as much for white children to see kids of color centered as it does for kids of color to see themselves in the center of a narrative. So for you, I know I've, I've heard you talk elsewhere about some of your first stories were written to be, um, I think Dickensian is the word, you were writing the style of Charles Dickens, which first off is just intimidating to me, just full stop. <laughs> I think that, that language uh, is a little bit beyond me. So how do you go about the process of decolonizing your imagination? I think you, you phrased it. How, yeah, how, how did you go about that? You know, it's hard and it's an ongoing process. And I encourage anybody who's who's interested in doing it to try to be as compassionate towards yourself as you can. Because I would say I started from a place of rage and I was, 
I was really angry because I had consciously tried to write like Charles Dickens. And that had served me well in high school and college because writing an essay, sure, my intro might have taken me two or three pages, but I finally got around to my five paragraph essay. Uh, and, you know, professors were always impressed with my vocabulary and my writing was very formal. I just, I did, I wrote in a very formal British style, <laughs> antiquated British style. Uh, and then I got to the, to the US and I started reading African-American fiction, especially women's fiction. And I met all these black women in graduate school who were writers. Uh, and one of them read one of my stories and said, oh my God, your writing is so British. And it was the first time that that was not a compliment. <laughs> it was the first time that I was actually kind of horrified. And I just thought, uh-oh, you know, I'm not British. I'm not trying to sound British. I want to sound like Alice Walker. I want to sound like Toni Morrison. Uh, and so I, I had new role models, but I had to learn that I, I didn't have their life experiences. I didn't have their cultural experiences. I, there was no way I was going to be able to write like them. I shouldn't aspire to sound like anyone but myself, which means that I probably always will sound a little bit British in my writing. And maybe my writing is a little bit more formal. I do notice that when I'm writing the Dragon series that I, I sometimes use vocabulary that's not that's not American and that's not um, appropriate to a nine-year-old child. So I do have to watch out for that. I think decolonizing my imagination mostly entails interrogating myself constantly. It means being very, very self-conscious <laughs> all the time, you know, like up until the pandemic, if I had a little extra cash and somebody said, why don't you take a trip? I would go to London always. I was going to London twice a year for five years in a row, maybe. I was writing in London, not always stories set in London, but you know, um, my father, <laughs> I grew up singing God Save the Queen. There's just, there's no way to uproot that part of my identity. It's a huge part of it. Um, to have been part of a, you know, my father growing up in a British colony, Canada is a former British colony, but you know, the Queen's on all our money. I mean, I grew up around British people, uh, Scottish people, Irish people. My grandfather on my mom's side was Irish, but her other ancestors were African-American. Like there was a mix and I had to find a way to honor all of that while at the same time acknowledging that that mix existed because of a history of the transatlantic slave trade and imperialism, which is not a pleasant history. So my dissertation, you know, was on racial trauma, racial violence and trauma. And I sort of always have, well, maybe not always my professor hat, but you know, my training stays with me. So I do think I gravitate towards uh, maybe some of the more difficult aspects of history. And I wanna make that understandable to children. I don't want to scare anybody or shame anybody. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I'm not writing fantasy in order to hide the truth. You know, I'm not like, it's incredible to me that British fantasy writers could not talk about imperialism. <laughs> you know, like I, I did the first two books in the Harry Potter series and then I was done. And it's interesting now to have people looking back and sort of doing a critique of those books and to have the author retroactively trying to be more inclusive. And yet, you know, the new series, the, I forget what it's called, Mythical Beasts or something like that, 
you know, I think the first the first film was set in Harlem and there was nobody black in the movie, like there was one black person in the movie. I'm like, okay, this is clearly a pattern and this is not accidental, this is deliberate. Um, and we have other options, you know, there are lots of other things we can feed our imaginations. So growing up as a kid, I didn't have options. So reading British fantasy fiction, that's what I had. And now I have so many other options and I am much more careful about how I curate what I consume. Uh, and I want to make sure that kids have those options as well. Uh, and I'm part of a big, a growing group of people who are getting published. I mean, there were always a lot of us, but we couldn't get published and not traditionally. And I don't think it's, you know, a coincidence that a lot of the people that were self-publishing were publishing specfic and sci-fi fantasy and paranormal. Uh, so it has taken the publishing industry a long time to sort of open up and be uh, welcoming of writers of color, particularly when they're not writing civil rights narratives or slavery narratives, because there was a, for a long time, definitely a preference for those kinds of stories. Uh, but you know, magic is about power. So if you're not publishing books about all kinds of kids having magic, you're saying that power really only belongs to one group of kids and that's not cool. So I think publishers are more aware of it. Uh, I'm certainly more aware of it now. Uh, it's lovely to have discovered so many amazing authors like Octavia Butler's. Uh, it's not a coincidence that my first novel was a time travel novel, <laughs> I Wish After Midnight, because I just think if I had read Kindred, you know, as a teenager, that would have completely changed my aesthetic, my interest in writing. You know, I don't really have any regrets about my education and, and that sort of thing. I think the journey has been worthwhile, but it is ongoing. And I do still feel oriented towards the UK. And I watch a lot of UK programming, a lot. Uh, and yeah, like I said, Scotland's on my list. <laughs> places to move to. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's always going to be there, but at least I'm conscious of it now. You say you're, you're constantly interrogating uh, your motives in writing, which is, I think is a good idea for all writers. Every writer should be interrogating their motives, whatever, yeah. whatever you're writing. Um, but 40 books later, do you feel like you found your voice? Uh, yes. Yes. Although, like I said, when you try different formats and different genres, your voice sounds different. I do notice sometimes more of that formality lingering in poetry, uh, which is interesting. And I think maybe that's because I don't write poetry that often uh, and I don't read as much poetry as I do fiction. Um, yeah. 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 I think, I mean, I hope, I hope that my voice continues to evolve, you know, like I think, I was just telling a friend how frustrated I am that someone will say, we'd love to have you do this event, could you send us a headshot? And I am somewhat obsessed as a middle-aged woman with having a, a current headshot on my website. So I take headshots every year. And I know some authors, they took a headshot in 1984 and that's what they're going with. They're just gonna use it for the rest of their career. And I don't wanna do that, right? I wanna be like, this is what I look like right now. Here's my photo. 
but I could send my headshot to somebody. I just did this last week and they went and pulled their favorite picture off the internet. Um, and it's frustrating because I feel like I'm sure you prefer me 10 years younger and 10 pounds lighter, but, but this is what I look like right now. And I think when it comes to voice, I, like I look at A Wish After Midnight, that time travel novel, and I wrote that in 2002 or 2003. You know, I don't think I'm ever gonna write a book like that again. And it is that much closer to my Dickensian days. So it, it is a bit more formal and it's long. And then the sequel to that was even longer. And I don't think, I can't imagine my, like when people are like, oh, you're writing a Viking trilogy. I think they imagine me writing like, you know, three 500 page tomes. And that is not what I'm gonna do. Like I really am trying to write in a way that's more dense because then I can have shorter books that say more, I think. I'm more interested now in texture and how I can create texture in my writing as opposed to writing extended descriptions of various scenes. There's not a lot of exposition in my books and I don't think there ever will be again. And I'm okay with that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I can hear my voice more clearly, but I also, you know, the more I investigate my past, my parents' history, my grandparents' history, I'm, I'm sort of really keen on genealogy. Uh, the more I learn about the history of the place where I live, I think that impacts my voice as well. So I wouldn't ever, I don't think I would ever want somebody to read something and go, oh, I know who wrote that, that's Seda Elliott. <laughs> like, I think I would rather be known for the themes or the topics I write about rather than having a very distinctive voice. Well, now I'm just thinking, oh, I, I would like them to say, that is a Rob Kemp book. I like that voice. Good news, there's more of them. Buy them all. I'm happy to keep writing in exactly the tone you prefer. <laughs> but uh, I wouldn't, uh, well, my, I, I, I wanted to ask so many different questions, but as far as learning more about your genealogy, learning more about the place where you're at and that impacts your voice, is that just um, unconsciously or subconsciously seeping in? Or are you actively cultivating that? Yeah, that's very deliberate. So that's one thing I can say that I do have is sort of a formula for how I write. Uh, you know, I'm very interested in Black history, and so I tend to land in a place and start doing research. And I usually can come up with two or three verifiable historical facts, you know, things that are generally agreed upon and those become my parameters. But if we were trying, if I was trying to make a fence with those three facts, it would have a lot of holes in it. And that's sort of where my imagination comes in. So I am often writing about black women and there are a lot of gaps in black women's history, unfortunately. Uh, but that's that's sort of the power of the imagination. Uh, I was talking to a librarian friend in Brooklyn the other day, and she said, you know, how has your writing changed now that you're in Chicago? And, you know, I don't think that moving locale necessarily changes my voice. However, you know, I moved in here, I think on September 27th, and October 3rd, I opened a document called The Boy in the Lake. And I had been thinking about it for several weeks. I just thought, you know, there's a boy in the lake. Why is there a boy in the lake? Who is the boy in the lake? Uh, and, you know, my dissertation was on lynching. So, of course, I know about Emmett Till. I did not know his house was so close to where I live. So I walked over and, and looked at his house and the memorial garden to his mother across the street. And I decided, you know, the boy in the lake is Emmett Till. 
Um, so that's a, a book, I, and it's a graphic novel. I would never have written that in Brooklyn. I wouldn't have written that in Philadelphia. You know, that's a story that I would only have written here in Chicago. Uh, and the more I learn about Chicago history, I just found out about a community called Oakland uh, in Bronzeville. And there was a rather posh gated community called Aldine Square. And then by the time we get to the Great Migration, World War I, uh, it's been almost entirely taken over by African-Americans and these mansions have been turned into rooming houses. And uh, a student asked me if I was ever going to write something about Ma so they could learn more about what Ma was like as a kid. And I was like, I could write a prequel. And next thing I know, Ma is growing up in Aldine Square and it's the red summer of 1919. So, you know, I, I have... Again, so I know that there's this community that once existed. I know about the riots, uh, racial massacre, really, of 1919 in Chicago. Um, I've already written the series where I've sort of got the world built. Uh, so it's not that hard for me to sit down and say, well, here's, here's what it's going to be like. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, so I do, I do notice that about myself, that I, I'm always looking for some little tidbit in the past that hasn't been discussed or explored before. And then I'm obsessed with history. I could, you know, look into history all day, but a lot of kids aren't. A lot of people aren't generally, in part because historians are, a lot of them are terrible storytellers. <laughs> they have all of this archival data that they just don't know what to do with, and they end up dumping it. And that's not an effective way to bring in an audience. So I, I think that's a skill that I have, is that I can, I can find the hook and then I can get you hooked. <laughs> and then you don't realize you're reading about the World's Fair in 1893. I can just sort of slip that in while you're thinking about the Phoenix egg that's in Jax's pocket. Gotcha. So your, 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 your not trick, but your technique uh, <laughs> is to, uh, <laughs> um, your, your, your technique, if I'm understanding, is a focus on the story, focus on the the, the drama of our character and the peril and the stakes. And then the history just moves to the background. So we are learning it. It is interesting, but it's not the primary focus that's going to engage your young readers. Yeah, it can't be. I mean, it's, it's frustrating because I tell people all the time that when you do, when you write historical fiction, for me, I mean, I use 10 to 15% of my research. So you are going to do a whole lot of research and you're not going to use any of it. <laughs> Um, you know, you're going to use such a small fraction of it, but if you go beyond that 15%, it can really weigh the book down. So, you know, if I were writing a scholarly essay, sure, I could dump in a whole bunch of more stuff, but I'm writing for kids and I'm writing for kids who, you know, frankly, probably haven't read Harry Potter and have never read a 500 page book. And if this is the first book, I hear that a lot from teachers you know, this is the first book my student has been excited about. This is the first book my student finished and wanted to read again. Um, if I'm going to hook you, it's got to be fast paced and generally short. The books are getting longer in the series. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to make sure it's under 50,000 words so that you don't feel in a kid who's a reluctant reader doesn't feel intimidated when they pick it up. Uh, parents who are doing read-alouds, a lot of parents, I was very surprised by the number of parents who said, I'm reading this with my four-year-old at night. We do a chapter every night before bed. Never imagined a four-year-old <laughs> as the audience for this series, but that's wonderful. It's become a family reading, um, you know, experience. And then a lot of schools chose it for their one book, one school program, which means everybody from K to five is reading the same book. 
and I do a lot of K to five presentations. So being able to talk to such a, a wide range of ages uh, and have it all sort of make sense that that's that's pretty special. What's been your favorite reader reaction so far? Probably the photos where parents or teachers show a kid who looks like Jack's holding up the book saying, he looks like me, you know. Um, I never had a book with a kid on the cover who looked like me. I never saw my name. I had a parent, South Asian parent, who said she was reading the book with her, gosh, maybe even three-year-old and seven-year-old, and their names were Vikram and Kavita. <laughs> and she was just like, you can't, I mean, she was like, I never had this growing up. So a lot of times it's parents saying, I'm still healing. You know, I, I remember what it felt like to be invisible. Uh, and so for a parent to sort of heal at the same time that they're giving their kids this, this exciting adventure where they, they feel seen, you know, that's really the main thing I'm trying to do is to say, I see you. I see you, Kenny. <laughs> I see you with that picture of your dad up on the wall and you scratched his face out. <laughs> I think I might've done that myself a couple of times, but you miss him desperately because you're wearing his fishing vest, you know? Um, and Kenny's dyslexic, like, you know, trying to make sure I'm including as many different kinds of kids as possible and using different names. You know, I, I regret that during the pandemic, I didn't have an opportunity, couldn't find really an opportunity to, to do the kind of research I needed to on, on Kiche as a language and a culture. But, you know, putting that in book three and, uh, you know, trying to include some Kiche words. And, you know, we have a large Latino population here in Chicago, in the United States generally, but it's often assumed to be Mexican. And we have so many, um, you know, Latinx kids who don't speak Spanish. That's not, that's not their mother tongue. They speak indigenous languages. So trying to make sure that you're representing indigeneity in a respectful way. And yeah, representing folks with disabilities, uh, representing folks on the gender spectrum, especially in this moment where, you know, so many school boards and ridiculous State assemblies are trying to ban books that, you know, finally give marginalized kids a chance to feel seen. Uh, it's all that more important to be deliberate and to be intentional and to be open and vocal about what I'm doing. One of my books, A Place Inside of Me, uh, is looks like it's about to be banned in Hanover County, Virginia, and I'm going there <laughs> in a couple of days. And I, you know, my publisher hired private security because when you look at the school board meetings, it's essentially a mob. It's a mob of white parents foaming at the mouth and screaming at school board officials. And, you know, my first, when they invited me, my first question was, is Virginia an open carry state? And it is. <laughs> so it was like, okay, so here we have this official, county official saying my book is anti-police. I don't particularly think I feel comfortable relying on the police to provide security at this event. So my publisher's hiring security guards just like how did we get here like this is not what I thought I was signing up for but you know it, it doesn't hurt me frankly if they ban it it's probably going to sell more but um it hurts those kids like if you don't want your kid to read it fine your kid doesn't have to read my book but why would you try to take it away from every child in the county uh that's where we are I was unfortunately spent a lot of time over the last four or five years asking why, why are you like this? Why are you doing this? But that's that's a whole another long podcast that we're we're not going to get to tonight. But when you're when you're up against that sort of opposition, obviously 
you got to go there. You got to show them that, hey, this is happening. You can't wish this away. This has been happening. But why, why is it important to continue to go there in person as opposed to maybe a Zoom visit? Yeah, so I was I was pretty surprised, and I, I haven't been to this community, this county, so I don't know what the dynamics are, but it seems like uh, the book is being banned. The impulse to ban the book is coming from one particular area, and then the book festival is being organized by a neighboring community, uh, and I get the feeling there's probably some competition there. There may be some class issues, I'm not sure. Uh, but you know, progressive people all around the country are standing up, thank God, you know, that they, they see what's happening and they don't want that to be, you know, representative of their entire community. I mean, if, I, if you said to me, what do I know about Virginia? I'm like, seat of the Confederacy in Charlottesville. I don't have, anything really positive to, to say about Virginia because I haven't been there to spend much time. We used to drive through on our way to Florida. There's a picture of us in front of like some big old plantation. Like I really don't have a whole lot of great things to say. So it is really heartening to me that as soon as the county supervisor called my book garbage, uh, you know, people reached out and said, we're so sorry that this is happening and we're going to fight the ban. And a minister, African-American minister reached out and said, I'd like to read your whole book at the next supervisor's meeting. And uh, another mother reached out and said, how can I get involved with my kids? And then to have the theater owner say, you know what, we're gonna start a book festival. Like we've never had a book festival before, but we're gonna do it. And we'd like you to be, you know, our guest of honor. So you have to make sure that you're um, embodying the values that you profess. And so I certainly believe in freedom of speech and I do not support book bans. Uh, and I wanna make sure those folks feel supported. I mean, the librarian at the school, what she's gone through and having, you know, being terrified her name's gonna be published somewhere or her address because she knows how she might be targeted. Um, and, you know, she shouldn't be apologizing to me. It's not her fault. And, you know, so to be able to get them tickets to the event, that was one small thing I could do. And I said, you know, I'd love to do a school visit. And I thought a Zoom would be a better idea because then everybody in the whole county could tune in. But they wanted me to go to one particular school and they're live streaming it. So I'll be doing it live, but other schools can also, can also show up. There's a Black-owned bookstore and I'll be going to the bookstore in the afternoon. There are a lot of politicians coming to dinner and the reception afterwards. Um, you know, they've really put a lot of thought into this and they, they are engaging their entire community. This is an opportunity for people who feel silenced or scared, you know, to be in the majority and to say, here's us, this is our team. <laughs> We're team freedom of speech. We want kids to have access to books. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a rather dubious distinction, right? To be the only county in the country that found a problem with this book. This is a book that won the Caldecott Honor Award. It was a National Council of Teachers of English notable poetry book. It was an ALSC, Library Services for Children, notable. I mean, it's, it's a book that every, not every, but so many children's literature professionals trained in the field have deemed worthy. And to have a small group of people who think that they don't need to respect that kind of training and expertise, that their opinion matters more, uh, and that they should get to decide what kids have in their hands. It's not good. It's 
not good. So I think the community wants to stand up <laughs> and make a show of their own values. And I'm happy to be there to, to lend my support and to thank them for theirs. That must take, uh, and I have to just imagine a, a tremendous amount of courage. Um, I don't know that I would have that courage to go there, but of course you go there and, and, and they see you and the people in the community who say, this isn't us, this doesn't represent us. And I understand I'm in Indiana. We're the former head of the Ku Klux Klan. It's, it's not great here. Our history, it's not swell, but I'm here. Maurice Broaddus is here. Barbara Shoup's here. Lots of great people are here. Um, and there are lots of great people in Virginia and they're going to hear you speak and they're going to be heartened and they're going to say, hey, we're not alone. There's actually quite a lot of us and we don't have to give in to these monsters that rose up amongst us. Or maybe we're always here and we're just being quiet for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I just, I just imagine like, you know, what example are you setting for your children? This county supervisor who calls the book garbage and he puts it on Facebook and I just think you know, if you have a problem with the book, there are lots of different ways you can talk about it. And frankly, you can make your own book. Like if you're so concerned about your values not being represented, make a book. That's what marginalized people have been doing forever, right? We couldn't <laughs> eliminate white supremacist texts. So we, we wrote counter narratives. We produced something to stand in opposition to what was there. Um, so this idea, this just the sense of entitlement, right? That what I want should be what everybody has to live with. Uh, and I just think we just came out of a pandemic. You know what teaching involves. It's hard. It's really hard. It's not the same thing as parenting. But if you don't like what's happening in your school, homeschool. Take your child out and keep them at home in homeschool. Then you get to call all the shots. But to say, no, we're going to take over the school board and then we're going to make sure that our values are imposed on everybody else. And we don't care if it's causing harm to children. That's the amazing thing, right? They've got this narrative that says, we're here to protect kids. This is harmful to kids. And it's completely imaginary. It's, it's an absolute fiction. But you know, Democrats have not been that good at coming up with their own messaging to counter that. Um, so you know, it's really important for writers and artists and people who understand storytelling and, and fictions and messaging to, to sort of get on board and, and go down there and say, you know. Here's what I want to model for children. You know, if somebody doesn't like something you've made, that's not, that's not really nice. You know, it kind of sucks if somebody says your work is garbage. But if you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're doing, you know, like I'm going to be spouting all kinds <laughs> of positivity messages, motivational stuff when I'm down there. Um, in addition to doing my usual, my standard presentation, which is about racism in publishing. I, that's a part of every book talk I give. So it's funny that they have a problem with this book because I've written a whole lot of stuff that is more controversial, but I guess they haven't found it yet. <laughs> or, you know, I think every conservative politician is just waiting for a book they can jump on and, and use that to feed their base, pander to their base. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt my feelings. I saw Jason Reynolds and Kiesi Lehman give a talk where they said it hurt their feelings when their books were banned. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Not at all. If it was somebody I respected and somebody who had expertise in the field, maybe. But yeah, for some politician to just spout off on social media, that doesn't hurt me. It hurts the kids, though. Well, trying to expect uh, such ignorant people 
uh, to have um, a clear argument for why this book and not that book or or to read. Right? By God, reading leads to empathy. Oh. And technically, uh, secular sources that, that would uh, disrupt their faith and way of seeing the world. New information would get in there and really make it hard to continue to believe what they what they want to believe. Um, they've got to pick the, the biggest, broadest target they can. Yeah. It's hard for me to be apolitical when this type of stuff comes up because it's they're not apolitical. They, they absolutely mean us harm. They do. They do. And people have long tried to um, pretend that children's literature was apolitical and that it was just entertainment and light and fun. But everybody has known all along that all of our books for children are embedded with, with messages and with values. They're coded. Uh, and so, you know, there are reasons why Dr. Seuss books, some of them were pulled, right? There are some of them we don't use in the classroom anymore, but you can still have a conversation about how the content of a book can be harmful. And I think that's really what they're afraid of is that conversation, right? If they're worried about a, an illustration that has police and an, a black child who's angry about a police involved shooting in his community, what they really don't want is to have a conversation about racial um, profiling and police misconduct, right? So they're just gonna say, this book is anti-police and we're gonna pull it from the shelves and nobody ever talks about it ever again instead of saying there are people in our community who have a different relationship to the police and here's why, here's what it's based on, but they don't wanna have that, kind. there's no nuance, right? It has to be the police are always right, the police are always good. That's how we see the police. Therefore, that's the, the message that should be promoted in every book in our library. And any child who's having a different experience, a different lived experience day after day after day, you don't matter and we're not gonna protect you. And we don't care if you feel silenced or shamed or excluded or traumatized, none of that matters. You don't deserve a book that's a mirror. Only our children deserve books that are mirrors. So, you know, it really is about making sure that all the empathy is reserved for one group of kids and for nobody else. To think that that's the value you wanna teach your child, that's, that's just a disgrace. It is. Um, it makes me wonder, two, two partners. Um, one, you said that you had started off writing in, in rage. Um, my one question I have for you is when, when did you ever stop being enraged or, or have you been able to? And does that continue to fuel you? And how do you make that useful rather than um, just, just impotent rage? And also, how do you maintain hope? I lost quite a bit when I saw 3 million more people voting for Donald Trump the, the second time around. I was like, oh my God, what was ever the point of, of who would I write these books for? Who's going to read them and have thoughts? <laughs> so how do you keep from succumbing to desperation? Or desperate, yeah, how, how, uh, despair. How do you uh, keep from succumbing to despair? And also how do you use rage as a tool rather than allowing it to overcome you? Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, I have to say, you know, I've been on the planet for half a century and I am not as hopeful as I used to be. I think that's just, maybe that's something that comes with age or maybe it, it is, um, you know, a consequence of being a critical thinker in the world. I know my sister who's a, also has a PhD, she's a psychologist and she, she would say, you know, can't you ever just turn your brain off? 
Like, can't you just enjoy this TV show? It's fluff. Just sit back and enjoy it. Um, and, you know, I don't find it enjoyable to turn my brain off. I like having my brain on all the time. It is exhausting. You know, that whole notion of being woke. I mean, we do need to rest, right? We do need to sleep. And fortunately, I am a sound sleeper. I have not lost a lot of sleep over the past few years. Um, but I am angry a lot of the time. I think it helps, again, that I write in a number of different genres for different audiences. So a lot of the rage goes into my poetry. <laughs> I was looking at, you know, the poems I had written since my last collection of poems, American Phoenix. And yeah, you can just see them getting grimmer <laughs> and less hopeful. And then I would have to force myself, you know, Mariam Kaba is an activist who said, hope is a discipline. And it's something you have to work at every day. You have to make a commitment to it. Um, and I have a responsibility as someone who works with kids. I'm not gonna walk into a classroom and be despondent. I'm not gonna walk into a classroom and foam at the mouth. Uh, I'm there to embody possibility and I'm there to model uh, ways of dealing with your emotions. And that is the whole point of a place inside of me. You know, it's called a poem to heal the heart. It's all about honoring your emotions. And I, I don't have a problem saying to kids, you know, I don't always feel hopeful. I felt kind of blue today. I've lived with depression and anxiety since I was a teenager. I talk about that a lot, mostly with teenagers, not so much with younger kids. Um, but, you know, we need to talk about mental health. We've got a crisis in our schools and in our communities because kids are struggling coming out of the pandemic. They were struggling before. Um, I'm a firm believer in talking about ways to transform rage so that you should allow yourself to be angry. There's nothing, there's no shame in being angry. There's a lot to be angry about, but staying in a place of rage isn't productive, right? Because all you wanna do is scream or hit a wall or whatever, or eat a dozen donuts. Um, so how can we turn rage into something helpful? How can we heal ourselves and maybe help someone else as well? And so, you know, what I'm gonna be doing uh, in Virginia is a poetry writing exercise and we're gonna talk about how to express our feelings and what are some tools I could give you so that the next time you feel something, you can sit down and write a poem. Because when I first started to write poetry, it was because I was too angry to form coherent sentences and poetry just required fragments. You know, It was a good way to get anger out on the page really quickly, especially for writing free verse poems. So I think in terms of my rage, uh, it definitely comes out more in my writing for adult audiences, uh, which I think is appropriate, but I don't try to tell kids that I don't get angry because I'm human and everybody gets angry sometimes. Um, and then, you know, when I say to them, you know, what makes you feel hopeful? What makes me feel hopeful? I also spend a lot of time in nature. That's one of the things I love about my neighborhood is that I'm right close to the lake and I'm very close to uh, the Garden of the Phoenix in Jackson Park. And there's uh, a meadow there and marshlands. There are so many birds. Like there are things that I can do to take care of myself, especially my mental health. And being in nature is a big part of that, especially because it's spring and things are growing and blooming. And, you know, you're just reminded that there are cycles. And if it feels like we're in a cycle of, um, you know, things not growing and things stagnating and things rotting, then that's just part of the cycle because what comes next is, is growth and life and 
so I can look to nature and I'm, I'm pretty good at writing <laughs> poems where I turn, start off in one position and but by the end of the poem, I'm in a different position. So if I can't do that myself personally, um, I think it's okay to acknowledge that to young people. You know what, I had the blues today and I didn't feel like getting out of bed, <laughs> but I did and I went for a run and then I felt better uh, and then I had ice cream for lunch, you know, like I, I don't always get it right. And I think it's okay to tell kids that. Um, but rage is important. Rage is, if you're not feeling something, then, then we've really already lost because, you know, we have to continue to be outraged by mass shootings. We have to continue to be outraged by book bans. It can't become so commonplace that we just sort of shrug and move on. You have to still be indignant and we need that outrage. Well said. I, uh, anything I would want to add just seemed trite. You've, <laughs> you've covered it. So let me ask you about uh, collaboration because you do quite a bit of collaboration, uh, which is something that always makes me just a, a little bit cautious because I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak. Uh, but you, you'd alluded to the, uh, the, the wonderful illustration and the wonderful um, memorable uh, illustration, A Place Inside of Me, uh, where you're talking about fear and the the, the the, the protagonist is, is on his bed, curled up, frightened, and there's the uh, the, the blue and the red lights uh, coming through the window when we know he's terrified because presumably there's a, a police car uh, nearby. Um, that image um, uh, is, is so striking that, that when you first see it, it, it almost uh, interrupts the, the flow of, of your words. Is that something where you can work with the illustrator ahead of time? Is that a happy coincidence? And then how do you have the trust that you, uh, you can know that, that that image is gonna be there and do what you needed to do for the, for the story? Yeah, well, the, the, the fact that I self-published so many picture books means that I had an art director's hat on for quite a few of those books. And I had to say to the illustrator, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And you never get exactly what you want, but it, you can at least point them in the right direction. So when you publish a book traditionally, it's rare for the author to have a say either in who the illustrator will be or in how they illustrate the book. And I was really lucky that Grace Kendall was my editor for FSG and she acquired a place inside of me and she picked an illustrator and then that illustrator backed out and she picked another illustrator and said, hey, what do you think, Zeta? And I said, oh, she looks fantastic. You know, this was Noah's debut picture book. Uh, and so Grace said, I think I'm just gonna give it to her and let's see what she comes back with. And she had drawn sketches of each emotion being represented by an animal. And my immediate thought was, you know, some teacher somewhere is gonna say, what's your spirit animal? And did not want folks going down that road. So I said, you know, and it was a little girl, a very young girl I said, you know, I really think this, the content of the narrative is better suited to a boy, an older boy, let's have him on a skateboard. I mean, I really had a lot of say in what the different spreads looked like. I mean, Noah did all of the different layouts. And yeah, when it came to the bedroom, I wanted a scene of red and blue lights and the boy standing at the window, which would have mirrored Malcolm X's very iconic image of him standing at the window holding, of course, a shotgun because his family is being threatened. Um, and they decided it would be better if the boy was smaller 
and the room looked much bigger. And so that's why there's a picture of Malcolm X on the wall. That was sort of a hat tip or a conciliatory move toward me. Um, but yeah, to have those lights, that was really important. I think it was just red initially. And I was like, no, it needs to be red and blue. Um, I just, yeah, Noah was fantastic and Grace. I didn't talk directly to Noah, but I could, through Grace, I could say, put a yarmulke on that man standing there at the vigil because I wanna make sure we have religious diversity represented and that sister there could have hijab and, you know, different things. Um, I had I had some input, which was fantastic. And that doesn't happen very often. And I just finished a book with another press <laughs> and another illustrator who did not take any advice. I had a whole list of concerns and he just refused to make revisions, so it doesn't always happen. And we'll just, I'm trying to keep my fingers crossed that the book will turn out okay, but you know, some artists are open to it and some aren't. Oh, well, I hope it, uh, it, it works itself out. Does that drive you nuts having had the total autonomy of, of being self, of being able to self-publish and call them all the shots? And now these jokers who say they're the, <laughs> they've got the money. So they're going to tell you how, a little bit of how they do it. I mean, how, how involved are you able to be in your traditionally published books and how, how tight are your hands? I mean, I was lucky with Random House that Diane Landolf, my editor for the first four books, uh, you know, she would run the artists by me. Do you have a preference? Do you like this one, that one, this one? Um, and so I was happy with the artists that were chosen. And if something came up in an illustration that I didn't approve of, I could say, hey, we need to change that. So I definitely had input on the illustrations for those books and the covers. Um, you know, the thing about self-publishing is you do have total autonomy, but then it's, it's, it's a lot of work, right? It's you wearing all those different hats and you have to do all the marketing and publicity and promotion and sales and distribution. And, you know, I just had a bookseller reach out to me and he needs, what is it like? Not 15,000 books, but something close like that of one of my self-published titles. I'm just not set up for that. Like I'm not set up. I just not. And I had to say to him, you know, he wanted a bigger discount than I was offering. And I was like, I'm, I'm not a publisher, you know, I'm not a traditional publisher. So you can't have those expectations. And he eventually worked it out. But um, I like having input and I like being treated as an equal. And so I really appreciate it when an editor at a traditional press comes to me and says, you know, we're talking to this illustrator, it's his first book, and he really doesn't want to do revisions. And I can just say, you know, it is not unreasonable to be asking for this, this, and this. And you can let him know that two debut illustrators, women who did a book of mine, it launched their career. So this is his opportunity to have a really profound impact and to make a statement and to, I mean, you know, I just thought he's being, he's just not putting the effort in. And it's his first book. He's, of all the people seated at the table, right? He's the one with the least experience <laughs> making picture books. All of the rest of us have experience and he doesn't want to listen. So then it isn't really, there's nothing you can do at that point. I'm like, okay, well, we tried and he's not interested. So uh, I won't be working with him again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not at a point in my career where I can just pick and choose who, I mean, Jacqueline Woodson can pick whatever illustrator she wants. I, I don't get to do that. But if you have the right editor, then hopefully their vision is closely enough aligned with yours that you end up with somebody who's a good fit. Well, it sounds like, uh, I mean, who knows why anybody does anything, but it sounds like a lot of insecurity and massive 
uh, masquerading as uh, as as perceived brilliance. I, I'm in control, so I can't possibly be wrong. There's no sense for there's no need for me to feel insecure. I'm going to do all of this. Yeah. My way. I'm an artist. I know what I'm doing. I'm like you are, but you're used to doing portraiture, and portraiture has limited storytelling capacity, right? Like again, people think picture books are just somebody scribbles something on a page. I'm like, no, you have text and then you have to fill in some of the blanks with your illustrations. So you're storytelling with pictures. You're still storytelling. So if you choose to take, you know, a stanza of a poem and just put a butterfly on the page, a close-up of a monarch butterfly, you haven't said anything. But guess what? Butterflies are migrants and we're writing about African-Americans. So we can link this to the great migration. So you could do pencil drawings that show streams of migraines or mig migrants, you know, moving forward and with the, I mean, there are lots of different things you could do, but that's far more sophisticated than just painting a butterfly or painting, you know, to say people can dance with joy and you've got the face of one person on the page. That's not telling a story but I'm sure it will be a beautiful portrait because you're excellent at portraiture. So I think, yeah, there's a sense that, well, I know what I'm doing because I'm a trained artist and you are, and you make beautiful portraits, but that is not what is required of a picture book illustrator. You're a storyteller and that's, that's a very different thing. And it occurs to me that I refer to the folks at Random House as jokers. Lovingly, you're all invited on the show. You're, you're all excellent, I'm sure. <laughs> So um, I'm watching our time. It's, it's, it's flown by, but I've got to know about your day because from the outside, it just looks exhausting because you're, you're working on so many things. What does on a day when you're, when you're not um, waking up a little bit glum, going for a run and then having ice cream, a good day, a good creative day, what does that look like for you? Ah, uh, probably still, you know, so I, I wear a pedometer, I try to get my 10,000 steps. So, um, I mean, I have to say that I love staying home. <laughs> so if I have a day where I have like a fridge full of groceries, or I've decided I'm going to order like a vegan burger and fries and a vegan milkshake. Um, yeah, I'm going to get on the treadmill off and on watch a show while I'm on the treadmill to make sure I get my 10,000 steps in probably not all in one go. I'll break it up into parts. Um, I watch Amanpour. I'm a bit of a news junkie, so I watch a lot of news. I watch BBC. I watch the News Hour. I watch the local Chicago show. Um, I watch a lot of TV. Like that, that never used to be a big part of my schedule, but it is now. Uh, I usually allow myself two episodes of a show that I enjoy, sometimes more. Uh, I make sure I try to read for at least half an hour. I got closer to 45 minutes in yesterday and today, uh, so I sort of have. I have a routine, but it's not a schedule. So all of these things need to happen in one day, but they don't have to happen at the same time. Uh, and then, you know, when I'm writing a thousand words a day, if I'm on deadline, I'm trying to finish a book, it is possible I will sit down at my computer at 11.30 p.m. and write my thousand words before midnight, and then I'll just go to bed. I never, I never stay up past midnight. I always go to bed at midnight. I do wake up early. I don't know what, I guess that's middle age. Somehow I always wake up before 6 a.m., but um, I don't get out of bed <laughs> until nine. I'm listening to NPR, I'm listening to the news and I'm checking uh, my inbox. And yeah, so I sort of ease into the day and I always have oatmeal for breakfast. 
and I have something sweet. These days it's banana bread because I made a banana bread, uh, but I did have ice cream. I got, I ordered delivered, had ice cream delivered. And then of course you want to add things to the delivery. So then I got some chips, <laughs> but I also made vegan chili. So I did, you know, I had my vegan chili and brown rice for lunch, for dinner rather, after having ice cream for lunch. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what my days are like. And then, I, you know, I might have a Zoom or something um, to break the day up. But yeah, I love, I love a day where I don't have to leave the house. Uh, or if I do, it's just to go for a walk in the meadow um, and to see the birds and to, I love living off peak. So like I try not to go out on the weekend because there's too many people um, But I can go, you know, on a Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. and there's going to be nobody at the Japanese garden and there's going to be nobody in the meadow, which is a little scary when you're a single woman, but I feel safe in my neighborhood and just being outside in nature that sort of fills you up and then you come back and um, yeah, you're ready to, if not to write, to at least think about it, you know, <laughs> and I'm trying to do it every, every day, every evening before I go to bed, make sure I've written something so I can build up momentum. And that's, that's basically what my days are like. Zoe, you're killing it. You have as much <laughs> ice cream as you want. You <laughs> Every day for lunch, if that's what you want to have, I got cool. <laughs> I do wonder, uh, since uh, getting out there in nature is so important to you, what do you do? I know the Chicago winters are brutal with the wind coming right off of, of Lake Michigan. Oh, I'm Canadian. So all this time. Oh, but it doesn't fade you. <laughs> I mean, the wind is real. You know, there are days where, yeah, it's it's really, really cold. But, you know, Cosby Cabrera is a children's book illustrator and author, and she lived, lives in Evanston, and I was up there last year. And every week we walked around like, the lake and Northwestern campus, and we didn't miss a week. Like the winter, I don't know if winters, the last couple of winters have been milder than normal. Um, but yeah, I got some snow pants and yeah, we didn't miss a week. It wasn't that intense. So I went to college in Quebec. And if you have been in Quebec in February, then you know what cold is. So I haven't had anything like that yet. It does get a little nippy, but if you're dressed for it, then, and it's a good way. Again, if you want to be alone, go out on a cold day because nobody is out. Go out on a rainy day. Nobody goes to the garden when it's raining. So inclement weather is, is not a deterrent for me. Well, that makes sense. I uh, grew up here in the Midwest, just too warm and too soft. And my first winter, <laughs> why would anyone choose to live here? <laughs> well, question I have to ask is, uh, Steve audience knows that I, I, I ask everybody, they wait for it. Uh, Zeta, Ellicott, uh, Zeta, Ellicott, Zeta Elliott, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? So the ghost, I can't say that I have seen one, but I have certainly sensed one. And when I was a child, there used to be a man wearing a top hat and a cape that came out of my closet and stood at the foot of the bed. <laughs> and my sister saw it too. So it wasn't just me. Uh, so there was that experience in terms of ghosts. Um, and then a flying saucer, you know, my friend and I, we used to sit on the promenade in Brooklyn Heights and we are pretty sure we saw a rocket. I don't know if it was a spaceship, but it the way it moved right across, I mean, everybody there was like, did you just see that? So maybe it was some clandestine military <laughs> experiment on a base in New Jersey. I don't know, but yeah, that's what we saw. Well, 
this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I so appreciate you making the time uh, for me and for esteemed audience. And um, you're going to keep writing. You've got another 40 books to get to 80. <laughs> <laughs> so as you do, come back and, and, and we'll do this again. Uh, for tonight, my final question is always some variation of, if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever would have made the, the biggest difference for you, uh, and give yourself some advice that um, would have helped you and might help all of those who are watching or listening to us right now, what would you go back and say? Have your own clear definition of success. And it might change over time, but you know, so many of us start out and we want to be on the New York Times bestseller list and we want a six-figure contract and we want, you know, lots of shiny stickers on our book. And that doesn't happen for 95% of writers. Um, so I think you really need to know why you're in it. And I did reach a point where I was like, well, what if you never win an award? And what if you never make money off of what you're doing? And what if, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if nobody reads your books, would you still write? And the answer was yes. So I think I've always been, um, later in my career, I have been clear on why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, and I don't compare myself to other people <laughs> because you can see, you know, folks getting seven figure deals for books that don't seem like they're very good and haven't won any awards. And it's just not a meritocracy. So you really have to understand why you're doing what you're doing and to find satisfaction, um, in, in things that are meaningful to you like the parent that tweets a picture with the kid saying, you know, he looks like me. And, you know, you made that kid's day for one, one little shining moment, they feel special and they feel seen. And, you know, that's worth a lot. It's not a seven figure contract, but it's a, it's a reason to keep doing what you're doing. So that's what I would say, have your own definition of success. That's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at Zeta Elliott. And there are four T's and two L's in my name. So you have to make sure you've got them all or you won't find me. Uh, and I'm on Facebook, author Zeta Elliott. I have an author page and my website is ZetaElliott.com. That's where my blog is. And as always, esteemed audience, head to middlegradeninja.com for interviews with more authors, editors, literary agents, book people, the world's best people. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.